Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. So joining me here today are the editor-in-chief of the BJGP, Ewan Lawson, and my two fellow associate editors, Sam Mariel and Tom Round. Um, this week, we're going to take the time to reflect back on some of the most read research here at the BJGP, looking at the top 10 papers of 2023. And I think it's important to point out there's lots of different ways to look at the top 10, but these are the most viewed papers up on bjgp.org. And we're going to just take a few minutes to look at each paper in turn to think about the paper's impact. But um, yeah, just thought I'd start by saying, how is everyone doing? Sam, how, how are things going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Adam. Tom, how are things going? Good, good. Happy New Year to you. Usual primary care busyness with viral urties, and I've got a slight urty again. <laughs> Sorry, I think it was the same time last year I had a cold, but there you go. Occupational hazard for us GPs, eh? Okay. And you, and anything you want to add? Uh, no, not at all. Yeah, the same being plague-ridden, viral struck for months, same as everybody this year. Is it, I'm not sure to say Happy New Year. It'll go out in February, though. I always wonder when the last point you can say Happy New Year is, but there probably is no point. So, But Happy New Year for everybody. Fair enough. All right. So I think we're going to kick things right off with the number 10 paper. And Tom, I think you're going to talk us through this one. Yeah, so this is uh, a paper using CPRD and looking at cancer risk. So people will be quite well aware of uh, a lot of papers in the past 10 years, and I think BJGP's published a lot of those, looking at using CPRD, which is the a big primary care database, looking at risk of symptoms and cancer and developing a positive predictive value or PPV. So that's in the NICE guidelines. So this was an interesting one because it's actually looking at non-red flag symptoms. Um, and we know from research that probably about half of cancer patients present with vague symptoms. So this is really an additional work to try and help us understand that, those vague symptoms. And this is particularly looking at, at fatigue. And this is from uh, Becky White and colleagues at UCL who have done this research. And just some take-home messages just showing how common fatigue is. It's one of the most common primary care consultations. And the overall risk is low. However, it's really trying to quantify that risk looking at fatigue with other symptoms and also at the age of the patient. Um, and really, in NICE, we talk about that 3% PPV risk when to think about cancer. They found that highest level of risk was with fatigue and weight loss, constipation, dyspnea, and interestingly, abdominal pain in males, not in females. And in females, it was bloating. So that's kind of a little bit about the sort of symptom signatures. So really thinking about how we might use fatigue, very common symptom, about 5 to 10% of our consultations, but thinking about that age and in correlation with other symptoms. But really that it's on that direction of travel that we've got the evidence for red flags. We're having that evidence for non-specific symptoms, and it's really helping us tease apart maybe how we could use decision support or other um, tools to help us decide which patients might need referral. Yeah, and Tom and Sam, I know you do a lot of research around cancer and diagnostics. So Sam, do you have any thoughts about this paper? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, a lot of people sort of sometimes question the symptomatic approach because the assumption is, well, as you know, we know, you know, a lot of people do present with these more vague presentations where the, the differential list is quite long and also that we're sending you know, lots of people for diagnostic testing that don't have cancer. So I think studies like this where they start to get into the detail and the nuance and try to pick out those kind of higher at-risk groups, you know, I think is is helpful to try and sort of develop this approach further and then refer the right kinds of people on the two-week weight pathways and to the RDCs without sort of just exponentially carrying on the two-week weight referral rises like we are at the moment. 
So I think it's useful. So I'll move on to the number nine paper. So this was looking at the effectiveness of antibiotics for children with lower respiratory tract infections. So kind of topical given how everyone's feeling at the moment. Um, But this paper was led by uh, the group of primary care researchers down in Southampton, led by Paul Little. And it's a fantastic bit of work on a topic that's probably especially relevant uh, this time of year. And this was a prospective cohort study of children and looked to see if we treat kids with amoxicillin or placebo for acute or uncomplicated chest infection, what's the difference in outcomes? Um, So they looked specifically here at the duration of symptoms and symptom severity. And what they found overall was that in this group of kids, there were no differences in the duration of symptoms for kids who present with chest infections between those who got antibiotics and those who didn't. And the only really statistically significant finding here was that kids in the antibiotic prescribing group had more side effects of treatment. So that's not unexpected. But I think the take-home clinical implications of this are that in kids who don't have specific signs of pneumonia, so findings on chest examination, well, parents can safely self-manage these infections at home. But like a lot of what happens with discussions around antibiotics and where they aren't useful, probably a lot will come down to those individual discussions between GPs and parents and strong safety netting. Yeah, no, I would just say antibiotics, they don't work. Uncomplicated chest infections, they're really to be we've got to find ways of not doing it more often where possible haven't we in terms of antibiotic stewardship so really interesting really useful study yeah just agree with that that actually we're still overusing antibiotics and this is more evidence even with the children we think have a chest infection that antibiotics probably have a minor impact so it's really thinking about the risk assessment tools and you know thinking about which which patients will really benefit from that and children will benefit from that so the vast majority probably don't so i think we've still got a long way to go for this you know it's a continual work for us we have reduced so i think we're on a positive trajectory of reducing antibiotic prescriptions uh but we we know still more work to do great and i think sam you've got the next three papers that you're going to talk about so why don't you start us off and this was a paper that you were actually involved with Yes, so conflict of interest to declare up front. I am a co-author on this paper, and I am also the former vice chair of the Primary Care Academic Collaborative or or PACT, which helped deliver this study. But I'm thrilled, obviously, to see it in the top 10 uh, for all those people who helped get PACT off the ground. So I guess a little bit of background on PACT. So uh, the Primary Care Academic Collaborative is a UK-wide research network open to anyone involved with primary care delivery and not just academics. In fact, The main purpose of PACT is to get more people involved in academic primary care and quality improvement. So about five years ago, a team got together and and set PACT up. And uh, I think at last count, they've got over 700 members across the UK. And the concept is that ideas come through the PACT network that then any member that PACT can get involved with, they do some data collection at a local level, which is then pulled and, and trying to generate some really interesting national insights. And, and the Y-Test study, which this paper relates to, was one of the first projects that PACT has run. And it was all about exploring reasons for primary care testing, uh, led by Jess Watson, who is now the current PACT chair. Um, and Jess has sort of talked a lot about the exponential rise in particularly blood testing in a primary care setting. So this study aimed to sort of explore who's doing these tests, why are we doing them, is it changing practice, changing outcomes for patients. And they found that assessing symptoms or disease monitoring were the two most common reasons why blood tests were done in primary care. 
about a quarter of them were in the normal range and uh, the person who was doing the data extraction sort of felt that about half in half of the occasions it did not change the patient's outcome again about four percent of all tests were judged to be unnecessary by the person who was looking at it now you know obviously this is using the retrospectoscope and someone who wasn't there in the consultation to know what the what the particular clinician was thinking. Um, so I think this was an exploration of yeah, what we're doing and why to then sort of think about, well, can we put some more guidance around it? I thought it was an excellent piece of work. And we, we uh, promoted this as our research paper of the month for the college. So well done to Sam and team. I thought it was a really good basis for work. And I think it does link to other work. We've, we've seen some other papers looking at chronic disease uh, follow-up with blood tests. I, I remember one, we've had one recently in the journal looking at CKD and also at um, DMARDs. They're actually probably saying we probably do too many tests for chronic disease management. So maybe that kind of can help to filter changing guidelines. I think it's always a tricky one, isn't it, when you're considering a new symptom and a new diagnosis, where probably we may want to do testing and probably evidence suggests that, but maybe it's in those with subtle symptoms or that chronic disease management, we could probably do less in an evidence-based way. Because always the risk of harm. And as you say, the minority of tests were actually normal. So the majority do have some abnormality. So it then we kind of end up chasing our tail somewhat. We do blood tests and it just encourages more blood tests. So it's a really interesting discussion. Yeah. And I know that Jess has done some other work around talking to patients about why blood tests are being done and if they actually understand what tests have been done and why. And, uh, and this research links really nicely in with that. I think it was Jess's paper in the past, wasn't it, that showed that the doctor expects the patient to ring and the patient expects the doctor to tell them. So there's like a, there's a hole that people fall into. So yeah. it'd be interesting to explore that further. But that was some preliminary work before this came out. Great. Well, thanks, Sam, for that. And then you're going to talk about the next one, which had a really catchy title, actually. So talk <laughs> us through this one. Yeah. So the title's called Mapping GP's Motivation. It's not all about the money. Uh, and this was done by colleagues in Denmark. And they used a, a national level survey of, of Danish GPs to try and explore what motivates primary care physicians. You know, why do they do what they do? Um and they did this in a, a, a theory-based way. So they looked at different dimensions of motivation. So the four main dimensions they looked at was extrinsic motivation, a perfect example being money, you know, something coming externally that motivates what you do, versus in, intrinsic motivation, which is more about you know, your personal interest in the work that you're doing. There was a concept called user motivation, which is delivering you know, altruistically for individuals. So you know, your patient that you've got in front of you, you're trying to do the best you can for them. And that's why you get out of bed and, and go and do your work as a GP versus public service motivation. So if you see working in healthcare or primary care as a service to your community and your society, does, is that your main motivation for being a GP? And the authors wanted to explore this because they felt it might be able to improve understanding about what impacts on staff well-being and job satisfaction and if those things could be addressed maybe you know happier doctors do deliver better quality care any thoughts tom you and uh, no not, not an awful lot i think it's you know there's kind of it's nice to read that some evidence that it's not all about the money especially in difficult times when workforces are on strike whether it's obviously not the gps but junior doctors consultants etc who are striking about money and um it's not the most important factor, but it's not. It, it's not non-existent either. I think that's an important point, particularly and hospital doctors and secondary care colleagues would be very 
you know, they do would make that point too. It's about, and it has, it's an important factor in terms of long-term sustainability of the workforce, of course. Um, but um, it's an interesting study to read um, and just to get a feel for what the wider motivations are as well. I wonder if that's why it's been particularly well, you know, the, it's very it's slightly clickbaity title um, in terms of it not being all about the money, but it's, you know, it's a more sophisticated study than that as well. And there's some interesting areas to delve into. So I'd encourage folk to have a look at it. And I think it's really interesting. It's from Denmark. So just showing similar issues, you know, we, we, we kind of talk about the worldwide crisis in primary care and, and, and GP family physician burnout. I think this is a common complaint across the world, actually. So, you know, we particularly feel exposed in the UK to it, but colleagues feel it all around the world, really. And it's thinking about that. I, I really like the sort of thing about it's actually a bit about everything actually into the mix. It's not just the money, but of course, that's important to live a reasonable life, but actually probably it's about the workload and number of patients that we have. So really thinking about how we can make primary care, family medicine sustainable and uh, encourage recruitment and retention. Yeah, I've been doing some reading around GP retention schemes and what works and where the evidence is. And interestingly, even schemes like golden handshake type schemes, which encourage GPs to come to certain parts of the UK, haven't shown that much evidence for getting and retaining GPs in practice in certain areas. So it's interesting to think about this um, and realise that, yeah, if we're going to encourage people to stay in the profession, maybe it's not all about the money after all. Yeah, there's no way those like golden handshakes in terms of, you know, if you're going to work in a practice six, seven, eight sessions a week, absolutely getting battered for months, years on end, that, you know, that's just not about the money at all. Um, so, I, you know, your your article on this is in GP retention has just been published on BJGP Life, hasn't it, Nada? So people could, yeah, that will be available for people to take a look at. Mm. Great. Okay. Okay. So, Sam, moving on, we're talking to you about another paper looking at opioids and GP burnout and prescribing. So this is kind of linking it a bit to our discussion about workforce pressures, but tell us a bit more about this paper. Yeah, so this was a really interesting one. So um, the title was Association of Strong Opioids and Antibiotic Prescribing with GP Burnout. And this was run by as a retrospective cross-sectional study led by researchers at the University of Manchester. And yeah, linking to the previous work, so there are some, there is some evidence to say that GP burnout and you know, lower levels of health and wellness is linked to poor quality care, and that includes prescribing. And so uh, this group wanted to use an existing resource in the UK to try and explore this in terms of yeah, prescription of drugs where you know, we can potentially be you know, causing harm or providing low quality care. Um, so they focused on strong opioids and antibiotics. And you know, generally, what they found, which probably not surprising, really, is that the lower GPs sort of rank their own wellness and well-being, the higher levels of, of prescribing these these strong opioids and antibiotic medications. It seemed to be more common in practices that reported longer working hours and practices in the north of England. So maybe you know practices where there are lower numbers of GPs um, and you know more challenging environments to work in. Um, it was. Tricky in this study because obviously this is just a, an observational association. So for the purposes of the data collections, you know, some of this data was collected at practice level and some at individual level. So the linkage was a little bit challenged, um, but they still found some sort of interesting suggestions to kind of build on this weight of evidence around impact of, of doctors' well-being on their practice. Yeah, an interesting study, very much sort of thought-provoking rather than sort of, I would say, sort of definitively proving things here but it, you know it just builds on other things and, and points to the importance of, of looking after the stuff mm. 
Yeah, I think that's that's it in a nutshell. Sam's done a very good job. It just it's good evidence that it matters that burnout's not just the navel gazing GPs worrying about their own personal, you know, circumstances. It has genuine impact across all sorts of behaviors. We could probably find similar um concerns around potentially what you could hypothesize would find similar concerns around diagnosis or communication and you know a bit clear evidence here of an impact on prescribing um and it matters it really matters yeah and I, i'd agree with that and i think it's again looking at that sort of inverse care law as well there's a clear correlation with deprivation so gps having high burnout in deprived populations and with increased rates of opioid prescriptions and antibiotic prescriptions you know that's that's probably the uh, fact that we there needs, needs to be policy changes as well you know that we really need to think about more evidence-based you know more primary care funding more resources but also really try to adjust that inverse care law which we've talked about for 50 years but it's still i'm sure we'll be talking about that for the next 50 years as well yeah and speaking of inverse care laws and deprived populations so you and i thought you might enjoy talking about the next paper which was looking at non-drug interventions to improve mental health in deprived populations. So why don't you talk us through this one? Yeah, so it's a systematic review, and as you say, non-pharmaceutical primary care interventions to improve mental health in deprived populations. And so systematic review review of quantitative primary studies published in English, uh, high-income countries, and they found 13 studies in total. Now, in many ways, this is almost a systematic review of social prescribing because 10 out of the 13 studies were... Um, related to social prescribing interventions. Um, they mentioned collaborative care in a couple of studies and a new model of care in another study as well. So that's the 13. I think the most important thing I would say about this is that the evidence is really weak. You know, actually, probably you've got to be really careful. There's some positive results um, were reported for the impact on well-being uh, in groups that were socioeconomically deprived but actually another study with those with the least de deprivation got the most benefit. So in course, inverse care, care law, um, alive and kicking there. And I suppose that, but I think overall, as is often a problem and it's mildly depressing in some ways when you do read systematic reviews is that how often do you see a systematic review and you discover that actually the overall study quality is really not that great. It's weak. And it's, you know, and that's not to criticize that individual research or those individual researchers. It's the nature of how, to a certain extent, how these, particularly social prescribing, how it has been rolled out to a large extent without large scale studies. And that's partly because of the difficulties of a complex intervention, of course, like running big cluster randomized controlled trials. Or the like is extraordinarily expensive and takes many, many years to do as well. So to a certain extent, a lot of these interventions, we've just gone with them. And of course, we're doing evaluations off the back of that. And there are not going to be as strong a studies as you would get if you went for that very purely, you know, that kind of cluster random RCT kind of model. So some evidence here that this may help to reduce inequalities and in mental health outcomes. But um, as the authors suggest, uh, you, we can only draw tentative conclusions here from the evidence. So at the risk of launch finishing with the cliche, it is a more research required um, kind of scenario as it stands. But I think we all hope. And there's always a danger here of the triumph of hope over re reality is that we all want to find interventions, particularly non-pharmaceutical ones, which improve these, you know, psychological health, mental health, physical health in deprived populations. But it isn't always the case. But we could definitely do with some better evidence as it stands. So I'm going to move on to paper number four uh, in the top 10. So this was looking at nitroferentone failure in men with uncomplicated ETIs. 
And this is another paper looking at the use or lack of efficacy of antibiotics in practice. And interestingly, I was teaching a group of medical students a few weeks back, and this paper was one of the ones that my co-lecturer picked up on from the BJGP to talk to the students about the usefulness or lack of usefulness of antibiotics. So its findings are already being used in teaching and hopefully in practice. Um, So this paper came out of the Netherlands, led by Tamara Platiel, who's a GP researcher, and aimed to look at how to best inform Dutch UTI guidelines, but by looking at the failure rates for commonly prescribed antibiotics in men. And we probably know from research uh, and from our own practice that antibiotics are really very commonly used for UTIs, probably less for men, but some of the antibiotics like ciprofloxacin can be associated with some pretty nasty side effects. So what the authors found here was that the antibiotic failure rate, which they defined as an antibiotic prescription for another antibiotic more than a day after the initial prescription was pretty high. So antibiotics failed in a quarter of those treated with nitroferentoin. And that was a trend that increased with age. And the failure rates were pretty high as well for ciprofloxacin and for comoxiclav as well at 10 and 20% respectively. Um, So nitroferentoin is the first line choice for uncomplicated UTIs in men in the Netherlands. So it's a bit rubbish that the failure rate was so high. But the research team suggests um, that we need an RCT to compare these different antibiotics, so possibly easier done in this kind of situation than in social prescribing, to look at the best treatment for men, just to know in the future what the best treatment options are. Yeah, I kind of agree with that, Nada. I think it's interesting with we, we, the guidelines in this country as well. We have nitro uh, ferantarian opt-ins, the first line recommended for uncomplicated UTI, and it's, I think that will really be interesting for our clinical practice it's about that safety netting isn't it about the sort of treatment failure sending the msu off looking at sensitivity so in a men generally i always will send up a urine rather than say in a women i think that's in the guidance uh, but also there's recently on the news around wanting to try and reduce ciprofloxacin prescribing that we had a recent alert come out on that so it's it, i think we need to watch this space and really think about what other options to potentially have in this space Okay, so I'm going to move on to the third most viewed paper. So this paper was looking at perimenopause in ethnic minorities. And I love this paper, if it's okay to love a paper. But I had a great chat for BJGP podcast with two of the co-authors of this study, Jen McLennan and Sultana B, who looked at the experiences of people working in primary care and help seeking for women with from ethnic minorities for menopause and perimenopause. Um And I think this is uh, a really important topic with the huge increasing rate of women on HRT and coming forward to talk to their GPs about menopause. Um, And this possibly covers a cohort of women whose symptoms and help-seeking behaviours and language around the menopause are not really well understood. So this paper took a qualitative approach. Um, They spoke to clinicians in primary care, but used a really strong patient-centred approach um, and took the findings to women from ethnic minorities to reflect on the findings. And what they found was really interesting in that there's a communication gap between clinicians and some women who don't understand perimenopause or menopause and its symptoms, and also a gap between how some women talk about the menopause from their own cultural perspective. So Sultana talked, for instance, about some South Asian women describing a heat in their stomach or a pain in their head. Those are symptoms that the women attributed to their menopause, but they weren't really picked up by the clinicians um, who then went down a different route of investigating for other illnesses rather than identifying that these are symptoms of the menopause. 
So there is a difference there in the language patients used in GP knowledge. And of course, all of this takes time to unpick, and that's not really easy to do in a short 10 or 15 minute consultation, especially with language barriers in place. Yeah, no, you've summarised it really well. What I would just perhaps add about the strengths of this paper and the reason maybe perhaps I love it as well is is that one of the, we do see a lot of the BJGP of papers where there's a little bit more convenience sampling in the qualitative literature. And that often means that people from ethnic minorities are not included or we don't have good PPI involvement necessarily either. You know, it's not always the case and it's not always possible. And we understand the limitations about the real world, how difficult it is to do research. But actually, that's one of the reasons. I mean, this paper is specifically about, of course, women um, from ethnic minorities and their experience of the menopause and or, and or perimenopause. So that was obviously very much in the headlines here. But it just that's part of the reason it's so strong. And I think so powerful, this paper as well, is because it's really providing incredibly useful information about how we think about consulting and how we go about tailoring what we do in clinical practice. Yeah, totally agree with that point, you. And I think it's an excellent example of a qualitative study. I would say anyone that's doing qualitative research in this field, have a look at this. It's 46 interviews with GPs from 35 practices. And then, as you say, it's them presenting the results to groups for so qualitative revalidation with patients. I think that's a really interesting type of model. And, and I think, look, this is a real challenge for me. I'm an inner city GP with a multi-ethnic population. Really, it, it is a difficult with those cultural barriers and understanding patients' presentation, which could be perimenopausal symptoms, but also that complex understanding of what the treatment options are with HRT. It's a long, complicated discussion of the risk benefits. Uh, and this really can really potentially be, be helpful to us. You know, and then we could think about models going in the future, maybe group consultations or, you know, decision support tools to help help our um, patients from non-typical backgrounds to make a decision in this space. Great. OK, so I'm going to move on to the second most read paper. So this is going back to you, Ewan. So we're looking yeah. at suicide risk in middle aged men. Yes, yeah, so a recent GP consultation before death by suicide in middle aged males, national consecutive case series study. So there was a sort of basically descriptive uh, examination of suicide in but they, they use a consecutive sample, middle-aged males, in 2017 across England, Scotland and Wales. And they found 242 male suicide deaths in that period um, at that point. There was a few things that were associated with that. Or they 43% had had their last GP consultation within three months. A third were unemployed. Half were living alone. Those who did go to see the GP were more likely to have had some recent self-harm, work-related problems. And also having current major physical health illness or a mental health problem were also associated with the GP consultation. So they're just flagging some potential markers, if you like. If you see if you see a middle-aged male and there's even that possibility enters your, well, even if it doesn't, it should be entering your head about the possibility that they could be at risk of dying by suicide. Um, I want to highlight in related to this one as well, that there was an uh, an editorial in this issue related to this paper um, by uh, Catherine Weatherall and Rory O'Connor, and they're from the Glasgow Suicide Behaviour Laboratory. Um, and um, I think we all know a lot of, I think we think we know a lot of the factors. One of the things I've always found about this topic in recent years is that I thought I knew the factors that were associated with people that might be more likely to go on to die by suicide. But actually, this one, this paper flags a few more that you perhaps might not be immediately aware of. And the um, volitional moderators 
there's a model on there as well, particularly figure two in the editorial, which also suggests some other possibilities as well. Things like impulsivity, people that have a high tolerance of physical pain are more likely perhaps to go on to die by suicide. And there are some others as well around fearlessness about death and mental imagery. I would really, if you want to just, you know, the stuff that we learned when we were going through as trainees, things have moved on a wee bit. Um, and actually there is, this is a really good paper to highlight some of those and the editorial is a fine bit of work alongside it as well. So there's a real opportunity to, um, improve how we go about looking after people in these circumstances yeah i think the the self-harming thing certainly um was an interesting takeaway for me uh, i think stereotypically you know when you think of self-harm you think of, of young females but you know i don't think of middle age i don't i think as often about deliberate self-harm amongst middle-aged males as i do other groups and i should you know and that, that's something i've definitely taken away from this mm-hmm. so an, imp- an important paper really to bring some of that research back into our practice about identifying potentially men at risk in this already risky cohort. So, yeah. And then we're going to move on to the most read paper. And Tom, I think you're going to talk us through this one. And I I was a bit surprised actually to see this paper as the most read paper, but tell us a little bit more about this. So it's about adverse drug reactions. Yeah, I think this is super interesting. It's our number one paper. So well done to the team. Um, This is primary care researchers, Tom Fahey, Emma Wallace, and other other colleagues who are uh, Dublin and Cork uh, in Ireland, and this was looking at adverse drug reactions in older adults. So I'm sure we're all aware that this is an important clinical area. Um, around 10% of adults uh, with the hospital admissions can have adverse drug reactions related to that. And we know that there's an increasing aging population with polypharmacy. So I think this is increasingly an important area which we need to be aware of as GPs and to look at. Their, their methodology was with 15 practices in Ireland with a cohort study and they found that and this was in patients over age over 70 not in care homes not cognitively impaired not palliative care so our sort of maybe our standards over 70 population who are not that very high risk group and they found that over six years one in four actually did have a adverse drug reaction around four percent required hospital and this was associated with polypharmacy particularly in those with more than 10 medications so i think this really fits into what we're kind of evolving that primary care model to have more pharmacists to do structured medication reviews using IT and technology to help reduce this risk. But just to be very aware, particularly in our older patients who are on more than 10 medications, that potentially high risk of an adverse drug reaction, which could lead to hospitalization um, and, 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 and untoward outcomes. So well done to the team for that number one paper. Yeah. And one thing I found really interesting about this paper was the concept of prescribing cascades. So you've got a patient who's getting an adverse drug reaction. And then in order to treat that unidentified adverse drug reaction, patients end up on another medication. Um, so it just increases the polypharmacy and risk of side effects in this frail population. So that's, uh, I think, uh, an important take home I took from this, from this research. Yeah, this wasn't an obvious paper to be number one. We don't quite know what drives the downloads at the journal sometimes as well. But I think as we talk about it, it becomes it becomes more obvious that it's perhaps one of the critical issues of our time in terms of clinical practice. And that's probably why it's at the top, because we have just a tremendous number of people on a tremendous number of drugs and we are causing we're doing more harm than good in an off far too many circumstances. So I think that probably we've we've answered many in many ways we've answered ourselves in that regard. It would be useful to see you know new ways or you know better ways of trying to mitigate this risk you know if we're identifying this problem and filling that evidence gap in primary care you know this population is going to continue to bulge in in the decades to come with our 
demographic shift from the baby boomer generation. So how can we sort of minimize this harm going forward? It'd be really useful. Great. And I think another, this is another paper again, where we can see the clear clinical implications of the research to bring back into practice, which is great. But yeah, I just wanted to say congratulations to all of the research teams involved. Um, I'll put links to all of the original research articles and the podcasts that we've recorded with most of the authors and research teams listed here in the top 10. And those show notes and podcast audios can be found at bjgplife.com. Thanks, Tom, Sam and Yoon for joining uh, me to speak about these papers. And um, yeah, look forward to doing this again next year sometime, I guess. Thanks, Nada. Thank you. Thanks again. And bye. Bye.